0: thank you it's great to be with you again this morning i think i was out here around nine months ago last time so far uh that was fine so far this time has been much better last time uh as i pulled into the parking lot i saw these oily drips in the wet parking lot behind my car and i thought oh no what's going on don't have time to deal with it now parked the car after the service i go out there and luckily my my friend had come to here Uh, the sermon as well. And so he and I were looking under there to see what's going on, and there's a hose just squirting transmission fluid out underneath our car. And so I thought, oh no, what do we do? Maybe we can just put some tape on it and limp it home. We go to the auto store, get some tape, and uh, it works as well as doing nothing. Um, And so so then I was like, all right, well, we just got to call a tow truck. Um, Our friends took Katie and and my kids' home, our our kids' home, and uh, I waited for the tow truck, and four hours later, it finally showed up, so I think I finally left here at six o'clock, so this is, as long as I can beat six o'clock today, we'll be doing well. <laughs> Let me pray as we begin. Lord, thank you for this morning and for your word to us here in, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 16, and Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, ears to hear what you have to say to us in this passage. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit and equip us to be your disciples in the world. Amen. Um, When I was in high school, I played trumpet and I loved playing trumpet. And when I was uh, our high school, I went to Inglemore High School. Some of you will be familiar with it. Um, It starts at at 10th grade and goes through senior year, obviously. And uh, so my first year I was just in the concert band, had a great time. And then my junior year I joined the jazz band and that was a lot of fun. It became my favorite thing about high school. I was good enough that I would get up early and be at school, at, I think, 6.30 in the morning for a zero period, just so I could be in jazz band. Had a lot of fun. Um, my sophomore year, we'd had this guy who played lead trumpet, kind of the, the top chair in the jazz band, and, and uh, he was just this phenomenal trumpet player. And uh, the year that I joined the jazz band, we had a, a gal who was a senior who was doing a great job at it as well. And then my senior year, I really wanted to be lead trumpet player, so I tried out. And I got, the, I got the chair. I got lead trumpet. And so it was really exciting for me. And at the same time, it was also, um, it, it was also quite scary because these great trumpet players had gone before me and, I, and they could play so much better than me. And I felt like they're gone. They've graduated. And I've, I've not improved enough to fill their shoes adequately, but it's up to me to do it. And so there's this great sense of, of excitement, but also of... Um, like a sense of a power vacuum and a skill vacuum and a sense that I was not adequate to the task before me. Um, I think a lot of us felt similarly. I don't know if I'm allowed... I'm going to talk about Apple. Am I allowed to talk about Apple here? This is Microsoft country, isn't it? I'm, I'm going to talk about Apple. When Steve Jobs died, Steve Jobs... Uh, I think a lot of people felt sort of similarly. iPhone had been dominating the phone market for three and a half years. The iPad had just come out and was, was getting rave reviews despite skeptical expectations. And for those who loved Apple products, Steve Jobs had become sort of this visionary, almost like this technological messiah who is leading us into the future. And when he died, a lot of people thought, what's going to happen to Apple? What's going to happen to technology? Who's going to provide the leadership and, and have the vision to take us where technology can go. Uh, and, and there's a, you know, a fear that maybe Apple's going to descend back into the dark days of fluorescent-colored iMacs with circular mouses uh, and you know, just not putting out good stuff. And people were genuinely concerned about this. And, and, and you know it sounds kind of silly. I thought it was kind of silly at the time. But there's some truth to it, right? We wonder, who's going who's to lead the charge? Who's going to take up the mantle and carry this work forward? I think we've all felt this way in a number of different cases. Maybe you've experienced it in the loss of a parent or a spouse, and you've then had to carry a lot more responsibility in your family than you wanted to or than you felt ready to do. It could be that you've had too much responsibility for a project at work given to you all of a sudden, so now you've got all this responsibility that you're not, you don't feel equipped to carry. Maybe you found yourself leading a Bible study or a small group that you only wanted to attend, It could be that you wanted to bring mashed potatoes to Thanksgiving, and now you find you're hosting, and you have to cook the turkey, and you've never cooked a turkey before. Whatever it is, I I hope you can understand this feeling that I'm talking about, of feeling like you're not equipped, you're not ready to carry on someone else's task. And this is precisely what uh, Jesus realizes his disciples are going to feel in John 16. John 16 is part of a, a long section in John, starting in chapter 13 and going through chapter 17. Where Jesus is, it's during the, the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's talking to his disciples and he's preparing them for what's to come. He knows he's about to depart from the world, he's about to leave them. And although he's going to be with them in a sense still, his disciples won't feel like he's going to be with them. And so, uh, and so he's going to prepare them for this. And I mean, imagine what it must have felt like for Jesus' disciples. He was such a confident leader. He had such a clear vision of what it means to be the people of God. He's doing these powerful signs throughout Israel, showing them what it means to follow God, and his vision was different from anything else that anyone had ever imagined. His disciples were convinced that his way is right, but at every turn they failed to really understand what Jesus is talking about. We constantly see them not understanding. How in the world can the disciples carry on with Jesus leaving, with him departing to the Father? So here at this Last Supper, Jesus takes a minute to prepare them, to calm them, give them hope for the way forward. And what he says is to the disciples, of course. He's speaking directly to them and their immediate situation. But it's also to us as well, as we are now carrying the torch as Jesus' disciples. Uh, So what Jesus says is to us as well. Now, I want to give you a context. As I said, this John 16 comes in the middle of a large section that's all really kind of one long, ongoing conversation or discourse on Jesus' part. Jesus knows, uh, we're told some of Jesus' motivations for this whole conversation. Uh, Jesus knows, in 13.1 it says, he knows that his hour has come. Now, throughout John, when Jesus talks about his hour, it's talking about kind of the sequence of his death, his resurrection, and then his departure to be with the Father again. And throughout John, he said, my hour is not yet here. My hour is not yet here. My hour is not yet here. And now he says, knowing that his hour has come. That's why he has this conversation with his disciples. We've been talking about seasons in this sermon series, and this is sort of the winter solstice of seasons for the disciples and for Jesus. All throughout John, you got from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12 is Jesus' ministry in public, and then here it changes. He's not in ministry in public anymore. He's talking only to his disciples, and it's time for him to die. So, this is a major change in the lives of the disciples and in Jesus' life. This conversation, we're also told, is motivated by Jesus' love for his disciples. It says also in John 13:1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. So, what this means is that the foot washing and this conversation that follows is all motivated by Jesus' love for his disciples. And finally, we're told at the beginning of our passage. In chapter 16, that what Jesus has said from the foot washing up to this point in the conversation, he has said in order to keep the disciples from falling away. In other words, he wants his disciples to remain in him and to abide in him. You guys are all, I'm sure, familiar with the, the vivid imagery of the vine and the branches from John 15. He wants his disciples to abide in him so that they can produce fruit, so that they're not like the vines that, are, that, that don't produce fruit and are cut off and burned. So this is why they're having the conversation And I think this conversation is really special because this is the most intimate that we see Jesus. This is the most pastoral that we see Jesus. He's being very nurturing and even tender to his disciples. And that's not a side of Jesus that we always see. Throughout John, we've seen him having these intense debates with with those who are opposing him, some of the Jews and the Pharisees. Uh, He goes out at hammer and tongs with them. It gets very heated, so heated, in fact, that they are trying to kill him. Uh, We see him getting exasperated with the disciples for their slowness to understand as he tries and tries and tries to explain what it means to follow him and to follow God. And now this last one is something that I can resonate with because I think Jesus' relationship with his disciples is similar in some ways to the relationship of a parent with kids. Um, I've mentioned my kids already. We have three. Peter is five, Micah is three years old, and our daughter Tessa is three months old. And I love my kids to death. But they're learning what it means to be human, and how it is that we live, and what do we do with all these impulses that we have, and, and what do we do but with, with the fact that I want something and someone else doesn't want me to have it? How do I deal with that? Uh, and, and it's such a hard lesson to learn to think about others before we think about ourselves. And so we're going through a lot of this. Uh, it's a hard, hard lessons for them. It's not always very fun for them. It's not always very fun for Katie or me. And we have to give out lots of consequences. We have to have lots of conversations about why you shouldn't hit your brother, why you shouldn't take his toy, why you shouldn't this or that or the other thing. But there are these moments, life feels like a whirlwind, but there's these moments when things slow down and you're kind of in the eye of the storm and you have this chance to have sort of like this really deep conversation with one of your kids. An example of this was the other day I gave um, our oldest a timeout for doing something or other and... uh, I went up afterwards, and, and usually I kind of go through this routine. Why did you have a consequence? What well, can you do better next time? And he'll say it or whatever. And this time I felt sort of this little nudge, go a little bit deeper this time. And I was like, Peter, do you have a hard time not being mean to Micah? And he said, yeah. And I said, you know what? I understand. When I was a kid, he, know, you know, he knows his uncles. I have two brothers. I said, Peter, when I was a kid, I had a hard time not being mean to my brothers as well. It was, it was hard, a hard thing to learn, but it's something that I had to learn. And it's something I still have to learn. And he kind of looked thoughtful, and I said, do you think we can work on not being mean together? And he said, yeah. And then we, we hugged each other for a while, and it was a special moment. And this is similar to Jesus' conversation with the disciples here at the Last Supper. They're in the eye of the storm. They've been traveling all around Israel. They've been having these conversations with uh, Israel's leaders, and they've been intensifying, and they've been getting more and more antagonistic. There's been attempts on Jesus' life. They've all feared for their lives. In a few minutes, Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's going to be executed. But for now, they're reclining at a dinner table. They're able to pause, and Jesus can talk to them. He's able to look them in their eyes, and he's able to tell them about what's coming. He talks through how he's going away to the Father, how he's leaving the disciples alone, in a sense, but he's able to encourage them also. He's still going to be with them. And he's coming back, he's preparing a place for them, and most importantly, he's sending the Holy Spirit to them, so there's comfort. He talks about how he's giving them a new command to love one another, as Jesus has loved them, and that this is their task as his disciples. He talks about the profound unity that he has with his Father, and explains to them that he and God love them in just the same way. In other words, Jesus and God are in each other, but he says that they're in the disciples, and the disciples are in them as well. They abide in one another, and there's this profound unity that he talks about and encourages his disciples with. Uh, Finally, he talks through the heavy but important news that persecutions are coming at the hands of the world on account of their love for Jesus. It's not going to be an easy road for them, but they're going to be okay. And as we read this remarkable passage, we enter into the intimacy of this conversation by the power of the Holy Spirit. We too are Jesus' disciples, carrying on his work in His physical absence, just as those disciples were. And so we enter into this conversation and listen to His words to us. So I encourage you to get ready because this is a unique passage, and I don't think there's anything else like it in all of Scripture. The main point I hope to draw out of this passage for you today is that our task as disciples, is, which is to carry on Jesus' work, is a difficult one, but it's one for which we are equipped by the grace of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. I'll just repeat that again because it's far longer than I tell you main points should be in preaching classes. Our task as Jesus' disciples, which is to carry on wor- Jesus' work, is a difficult one, but it's one for which we are equipped by the grace of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within us. In this passage, John 16, we're going to see three different ways that Jesus talks about the, the role of a disciple being difficult, and, uh, and he's going to provide uh, sort of a way through each of those difficulties. The three difficulties are persecutions, Jesus' departure, and our own failures. So we'll talk about each of them in turn. First is persecutions, and here we're looking primarily at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Jesus tells his disciples that people are going to throw them out of the synagogues and even think they're serving God by killing the disciples. So hard times are coming. Jesus warns them in advance so that they aren't surprised by it. And so they know that it doesn't mean that things are wrong. This is to be expected. Um, They shouldn't be surprised by this when it happens. And we know from Acts that, in fact, they did face some pretty intense persecutions. There's arrests, floggings, uh, stonings, executions, uh, all kinds of unpleasant things are in their future. And we see these kinds of persecutions going on around the world as well. Fortunately, we in North America typically don't face that sort of persecution, but many of our brothers and sisters around the world do experience exactly this kind of persecution. At the end of chapter 15, right before our passage, Jesus explains that the persecution they will face from the world is because of the world's response to Jesus. In other words, they hated Jesus, so if the disciples are following him, they're going to hate the disciples as well. They persecuted Jesus. They're going to persecute disciples. Now, some, of, some people responded positively to Jesus, and those same people are going to respond positively to the disciples as well. But there's going to be persecution in the world. That's just the way it is for those who follow Jesus. Now, Jesus explains why this is a little bit earlier in John. In John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, he says that he came as light into the world. And then he says that the problem is that the kind of light that Jesus is reveals people for who they really are. You can't hide in the darkness anymore. You can't fool people about your true nature. And people don't want their true nature exposed. Many people do not want their true nature exposed. And so when when they encounter Jesus, the light, they run from him. Or they attack him. And they prefer the darkness. John tells us that many people preferred the darkness rather than the light not all people but many people because they don't want their nature exposed and I think this is important to realize because I often catch myself thinking that if we just witness to Jesus well and cleanse the church of all the bad stuff then people are going to flock to it that in reality no one is opposed to Jesus people are just opposed to the way Jesus is presented to them but John has something else to say and I think you know I think it's There's some truth to the fact that the church has, of course, made lots of mistakes in proclaiming Jesus to the world. We've done that poorly, and we need to own that. But it's not the whole story. Jesus himself, no one presents Jesus better than Jesus himself, right? And Jesus creates a huge division among the people in Israel. People split when they encounter him. Some come to him, many run away, or even try to kill him. So I, I, I say that, I hope to encourage, encourage you, it's sort of a weird encouragement, but I say that to encourage you that as you live out your faith, if you experience animosity, it's not necessarily because of something that you have done wrong. It's part of the nature of being disciples. Now, we always have to be careful. We've always got to be checking in when we experience this sort of animosity. Is this because of something I've done or is it because of who Jesus is and who this person is that I've been talking to? If I'm a jerk for Jesus... People aren't going to like me very much, not because of Jesus, but because I'm being a jerk, right? Pretty straightforward. But the fact remains that many hate the light and run from the light. So I wonder if you face persecution. Maybe you've been passed up on a promotion because you insist on putting your family first and you won't work as much overtime as somebody else. Or maybe your friends think that you're a prude because you don't engage in certain kinds of joking or you don't drink as much alcohol as them. Or maybe you've tried to share your faith with friends and found them uninterested or closed off. Maybe your family doesn't get why you're so religious and treats you a little bit differently than they treat the rest of the family. There's all kinds of different ways that we can face persecutions like this, and none of these are as intense as the sort of persecution that Jesus is talking about his first disciples facing or that some of our brothers and sisters face around the world. But it's real, and it hurts. And I want you to feel encouraged that this is normal. This is the way it is when we're disciples of Jesus. And know also, though, that this doesn't mean you've got to be people's doormat. You know, if you've got to go talk to your HR manager, you can talk to your HR manager. If you've got to set healthy boundaries with your family, that's fine. I'm not saying that you've got to just open yourself up to any kind of mistreatment. I just, I, I just hope you realize that mistreatment is a part of being a Christian sometimes. And how does Jesus, deal, how does Jesus equip us to deal with these? Um, I'd like to say that he gives us a, a, a key to never feel bad when we're persecuted, but he doesn't. The way he equips us is to to give us advance warning, so we're not surprised or afraid when it happens, and uh, and to to tell us that it's normal, so that we don't feel like we're doing something wrong. I think I think this can be helpful helpful for us. Um, for example, my brother he runs triathlons, and um, these are hard. I've never done a triathlon myself, but I've been running and I've swum and I've biked. And so all three of those are hard. So I imagine if you put them together that they're still hard. Um, But he doesn't mind. He he enjoys triathlons because he knows that they're going to be hard. He prepares himself for it mentally and he prepares himself for it physically. And so knowing in advance helps him endure the hardship of the races. And I think that in the same way, knowing that persecutions are coming, knowing that it's an, an integral part of being a disciple of Christ can help us endure when we encounter them. So the second reason that our our task as disciples is difficult is that Jesus is departing. Jesus is going to die, and he tells him this. Josh read for us this morning. uh, In chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Now this is typically clear for Jesus, by which I mean not clear. And the disciples are confused, and so are we. So they say, what does he mean by this? And then Jesus explains... He says that soon they're not going to see him. Here he's talking about his death. He's about to die, and they're not going to see him. He's in a tomb. And then they'll be sad, naturally. And then they'll see him again. And this is a reference to his resurrection. And at that point, their mourning will be turned to joy. They're going to be happy again. And he compares this to uh, the pain a woman experiences in labor, which is immediately turned into a joy when a baby is born. So, as you know, we've had three kids. And our last two were home births, so we put uh, like a hot tub in the living room, essentially, and uh, and uh, it's less fun for Katie than usually when sitting in a hot tub, but uh, more fun than not sitting in a hot tub and giving birth, I guess. So uh, Katie is, is usually a, a very sweet person. I don't, I don't typically describe her as intense, but when it's time to have a baby, she's very intense, as I think most women are. And... Uh, and I am helping her give birth, which means that I sit there and hold her hand while she does all the work. And, uh, and she, like, the intensity of birth is something to see, right? Like, I've never seen my wife as intense and as much pain and working so hard as when she's giving birth. Our, Tessa was uh, quite a bit larger than our previous two babies, and so she, she had to work a lot harder to get Tessa out. And I'm sitting there holding her hand um, next, to, next to the pool. She's laboring in there and just like she's screaming. You can see she's in a ton of pain. The veins are popping out on her face. And she looks like Dwayne The Rock Johnson doing his workout or something like that. I mean, it's just like it's really intense. And she's working so hard and, and in a lot of pain. And then Tessa came out. And the midwives quickly grabbed her, grabbed Tessa and, and gave her to Katie. And Katie sits back in the tub and holds her. And it, the change is instant, right? I don't know if it's this way for all women. But for Katie, the change is instant from intense pain, intense labor, to joy. She's just sitting there crying for joy that she's got this little baby in her arms, and, and the baby's here. And Jesus is saying that for his disciples, uh, this change is going to be like that their change from sorrow to joy is going to be as quick and as dramatic as the change for a woman who's who's in labor and having a child when Jesus rises from the dead their sorrow will be pl- replaced with joy but Jesus isn't staying and so this creates a sort of a second sorrow for the disciples he's coming back to life this is great joy but then he's he's leaving he's going to the father he's not staying And this fills the disciples again with sorrow, and and I think a sense of insecurity, like we talked about at the opening of this sermon. Who's going to be in charge? Where are we going? Who's driving this ship? And I took a sailing course uh, in Vancouver, BC, after I finished studying at Region College. It was a lot of fun, and I learned some things that you need certain equipment to sail a boat. One is a boat, of course, the second is a sail. The third is a rudder. That's the board in the back that steers your boat, and you hold the tiller to turn it. And then you need a, what's called a keel. It's just a flat board on the size of boats that I had. You just drop it down a hole in the middle of the boat, and it's, it's there to... The wind is almost never blowing directly behind you when you sail, right? It's blowing from the side or sometimes from the front or back angle. So if you don't have the keel, it's just going to blow your boat sideways while you're trying to trying to sail forward. So the keel is really important. <clears throat> and I think that there's this, there's this moment for inexperienced sailors like me, at least, when you're taken off from the beach, you get in your boat, you push off, and you, you have to catch the wind just right in the sail so that it starts pulling you in the right direction. And you have to hold the tiller so that your boat stays going in the right direction. But then you can't put the keel in yet because it's too shallow and the keel will hit the ground and your boat will get stuck. So you have to kind of try to limp your boat out there into the water until it's deep enough to put the keel in. Uh, but your boat's sliding all around on the water because there's no keel. And then with your hands, two hands full, you got to somehow pick up the keel and drop it in the hole. And, and I'm sure that some people know how to do this very smoothly, but I usually, uh, I usually think that, oh, my rudder will just stay straight while I put the keel in. And so I let go of the tiller for a second and I grab the keel and try to put it in. Well, the boat quickly swings around and then my sail's in the wrong spot and it's blowing around and, and about to hit me in the head. And it's And kind of an anxious moment. Once you drop that keel in, then you're good to go and you're going straight. But it's an anxious moment because I feel like I don't have control of the boat. I don't know where the boat's going. I don't know how to steer it. And I think that's how the disciples felt, understanding that Jesus was leaving them. And it was up to them to carry on his work in his absence. Surely they're just going to start drifting off wind, drifting off course. But Jesus tells them it's going to be okay. It's for the best, actually. Because he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And the Holy Spirit will be like a new keel and a new rudder for their boat. Give them direction and guidance. And he calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. This is a Greek word. I just learned Corey is a Greek scholar. And I think Josh knows Greek too, right? So you can, you can check with those guys afterward if, I, if I'm right. But the, uh, John calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. And this means one who appears in another's behalf. It's often translated helper or advocate, but it means someone who re- appears in another's behalf. In other words, the Holy Spirit is representing God to us. In the same way that Jesus represented God to us on earth, the Holy Spirit now is doing that. God is with us. Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you all probably know, that, as many of you at least, that as Christians, we're supposed to be Trinitarian, right? Right? In other words, we believe that God is made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we often live functionally as binatarians, or maybe you pronounce it binitarians, It's not a real word, so I can say it however I want. But in other words, that we forget about the Spirit, and we only focus on two persons of the Trinity. So there's God the Father, the Creator, and the Father of Jesus, and then we mess stuff up, so he sent Jesus. Jesus dies to save us and rises again, and now everything is happy-go-lucky, and that's it, Right? We forget about the Holy Spirit sometimes. And we need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is what animates the church. Without the Holy Spirit, we're nothing. The Holy Spirit is key to our ability to come, continue as disciples in Jesus' physical absence. And this is something that I'm working on in my own life, to, to develop a better sensitivity for the Holy Spirit. Um, an example of this is I had a conflict with someone this week. There's a fair amount of anger on both sides of this conflict, a sense that we'd both been wronged by the other. Uh, we tried to have a conversation for some reconciliation. It was kind of a frustrating conversation. I think neither of us felt like it, it went anywhere very productive. Uh, and afterward, as I sort of calmed down after this conversation, this, it keeps, of course, rolling around in my mind. Um, I've got these feelings of frustration. But but as in the, I'm in the midst of that, all these These quiet thoughts start arising, and I start realizing slowly that whether this person was right or not, they were right about some stuff in my own life that I needed to work on, that I needed to change. And I think, you can never tell for sure, but I think that's the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And I think that the Holy Spirit speaks to all of us in this way, and in many ways. That's not the only way the Holy Spirit speaks. But I hope to to be more and more open to the Spirit's conviction, the Spirit's leading in all kinds of situations like this. I challenge you as well to find ways to be increasingly, uh, increasingly present to the Holy Spirit in your lives, and to hear the Holy Spirit, and to respond to the Holy Spirit. So that's the second way Jesus' departure makes our discipleship hard, but we have the Holy Spirit. The third way that our discipleship is hard is our own failures. At the end of this uh, chapter, in John 16, <clears throat> the disciples declare that they now understand what Jesus is, sta- uh, is saying, and they believe. And Jesus says, oh, really? Well, in a few hours, you're all going to abandon me. And it's true. Uh, Immediately after this conversation, Jesus is arrested and his disciples leave him alone. Peter explicitly denies Jesus three times. The beloved disciple is the only one who sort of remains. He's kind of tagging along with Jesus, but he's weirdly silent throughout the whole scene. He's not really jumping to Jesus's defense. So, I wonder if you ever feel inadequate for the task of following Jesus. Because if you do, you're in good company. Because these same disciples who abandoned Jesus after proclaiming so confidently that they believe in him, after Peter declared he'll lay down his life for Jesus, uh, these same disciples are the ones who transformed, uh, they were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they became the missionaries and the apostles that established the church that is now something like 2.4 billion people across the globe. So if if there's room for these guys to continue being Jesus' disciples, there's room for you as well. And I hope that's encouraging. It's certainly encouraging to me. And notice what Jesus says to them after declaring that they would be scattered. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So these are fickle disciples. They're not as good as they ought to be. Jesus knows they're going to fail, but he wants to give them peace anyway. And notice also what Jesus says Last time they declared their loyalty for him. This is in chapter 13, and Peter, there in particular, Peter declares, "I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus." And Jesus says, "No, you won't. You're going to deny me three times." But Jesus goes on, "Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In other words, Peter and the disciples' fail, failure, despite their failure, Jesus loves them. He's going to bring them to himself. When they fail, they just need to get up, dust themselves off, and keep on going. And the same is true for us. Jesus doesn't want us to fail him, of course, but he knows that we will. And even so, he's preparing a place for us. He's going to bring us to, uh, to be with him again one day. Our failure is not the end. When Peter denies Jesus three times, he's standing next to a charcoal fire, John tells us, in the courtyard of the high priest. And later, when Jesus appears to his disciples in John 21, they're fishing. They see Jesus on the beach. And do you remember what Jesus builds on the beach? It's a charcoal fire, right? Now this is, it doesn't always come out in English translations, but it's specifically called a charcoal fire, and these are the only two places in the whole New Testament that a charcoal fire is mentioned. And I think this is significant, because why would Jesus do this? He's reminding Peter of, this, of the time when he, had, when he had denied Jesus three times. And then, when they all come, they eat breakfast by the fire, what does Jesus do? Three times, he asks Peter, do you love me? And each time, when Peter says yes, he says, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. He's asking Jesus to continue his work as the good shepherd. He's encouraging Peter. He's, he's sort of reinstating Peter as a, as a disciple. He's forgiving Peter and, and, and commissioning him, recommissioning him to continue carrying on his work in the world. So I wonder how you failed at being a disciple have you, denied have you denied Jesus by acting as though you weren't a Christian in order to fit in better with a certain group of people? Have you been mean to a family member or a coworker? Have you been apathetic about pursuing your relationship with God? I've certainly done all of these things. We all have, I think. But my question is, do you think that Jesus' response to you is going to be any different than it was to Peter? I would argue that no, it won't be. Um... His response to all of us is the same. He offers us the same forgiveness, the same trust, the same honor and responsibility of carrying on his work in the world, of bringing light into the darkness, of bringing a starving people to the bread of life, of bringing a parched people to the rivers of living water that are flowing out of Jesus' belly. He says to all of us, Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And this is a noble work. It's a noble work that he invites us into. So I wonder, what is one way that you can work at feeding Jesus' sheep this week? It's going to be different for all of us. Jesus calls us all to a different sort of work in the world, in our particular circles. But remember, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is going with us. He's going before us. He's going behind us. The road's going to be hard. There's going to be persecutions. There's going to be failures. There's going to be frustrations. But Jesus has not left us alone, and he never will. May we all continue to join Jesus faithfully in his work by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the great work that you have done and continue to do here on earth. We thank you for inviting us to participate in that. And Lord, we ask that you would fill us all with your Spirit, empower us through that Spirit to carry on your work in this world.